The future of food raises questions about the lives of the people who grow it or catch it, as well as those who eat it, those who sell it at market, those who prepare it in the restaurants, and those who don't have access to it. Learn about the present and future of the food of North Carolina. It's on Tip of the Tongue. We're here today with Marcy Cohen-Ferris and Casey Highsmith. They are editors of Edible North Carolina, a journey across a state of flavor. Marcy Cohen-Ferris is Professor Emerita of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she's Interim Director of the Center for the Study of the American South. Casey Highsmith is a writer, food historian, recipe developer, and photographer, and also social media director of the Museum of Food and Drink in New York. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having hey. us. It's so great to be here. It's so it's such an honor to talk to you, Liz. So I want to tell you, first of all, what a wonderful book this is. And I I think, I don't know why I put North Carolina and South Carolina together, because of course, one is North and one is South. I do the same thing with North Dakota and South Dakota in my head. <laughs> anyway, this book is such a lovely contrast and yet almost a companion book to David Shields and Kevin Mitchell's book about the food of South Carolina, Taste of the State. Yeah. But it's such a different format, a different approach. You know, their book is all about history of the foods themselves and yours is such a reflection on the present and the future. How did you decide to take this perspective? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And I do love seeing those two books together. You know, when we were working on our book, I saw, you know, or maybe David wrote me about, or Kevin wrote me, maybe both about the project that they were beginning to work on, on South Carolina and its iconic dishes. Mm -hmm. And I I love that. And I I think it's really exciting to start to see really compelling scholars and and folks within the field of food studies work looking at their states looking at mm -hmm. their places in a really complicated way recognizing that it's 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 much more there are so many layers to what what our food tells us about the history and the experience and the changing environment of the places in which we live and it speaks a lot to what's happening in the nation as well but our, this focus that we took to really look at the contemporary food movement in North Carolina came out of a food studies, an American food studies class that I was teaching at the University of North Carolina. And as Liz can imagine, because of our work within living within the South, our longtime work and involvement in the Southern Foodways Alliance, there was a big section of the class focused on the American South. And so many people to bring into the classroom affiliated with SFA and outside of that as well. Scholars, Secretary of Agriculture, fishermen, you know, just, you know, extension agents, folks within our, you know, agriculture programs in nearby universities. And so Southern Focus then, then even more, we started to narrow, I started to narrow that lens and look at North Carolina and decided that there was really 
a seminar that could just focus, not a seminar, it was really a big class. We had a lot mm -hmm. of students, about 70 students the first time we did it. That's not a seminar. <laughs> yeah, and, and sent students across the state to do oral histories that were connected to their own interests, you know, but with North Carolinians involved in food. And always there was the idea that a book would come out of that process. But I, I know I've been in North Carolina maybe 20 plus years, but I certainly am not, you know, cannot write that history of North Carolina food and know as one individual, I knew that what I really wanted to do was look at the contemporary food movement using the voices, great expertise in the state, but then tie it back, try to understand the foundations of this food movement. How did this happen here? And, you know, so that it's a little less flattened, you know, that it's that people don't see when you say food movement in North Carolina or anywhere in the United States, that you don't necessarily flatten it into you know, one class of people's experience right. where mm -hmm. they think this is very privileged. Um, you know, we're talking about wherever North Carolinians access, how they access food, that's part of the food movement here. Or don't access food too. We definitely have a lot of that that's, in the book. Yeah, that's the, the lack that, of access that too. or the and, disparity uh, yeah. of access. I, I think right. that that's one of the the really good points of the book is that you don't just glorify food, which so many books do. You really talk about all the issues around food, including hunger and lack of access, which I think is really important. You can't look at only the highest of the high or whatever. I think it's really important. So how did you narrow down your focus to select the essays that you did? And also, did you decide, oh, let's talk to these people and ask them to do an essay? Or how did you get this together? Because it seems coherent, <laughs> but sometimes you can work backwards into coherence. So I just want to know what your process was. Yeah. Well, I talked to a lot of folks that I, you know, really value their counsel mm -hmm. about issues across the state and, you know, what those really substantive issues are that we all kind of face. And as Casey mentioned, encounter in very different ways, depending upon our, you know, our class, our economic status, our skin color often in this state, so many, so many issues. And then, so really started with issues mm -hmm. and the topics we thought had to be included, you know, and then started to think about who are the who are the people to match to that. We knew that like the local seafood movement is really critical in this state. And very few people really even across the United States tend to think about the local food movement, including the fish and seafood movement, which is, I mean, we do because we've got a 3000 mile coast here in North Carolina and one of the most abundant areas of a fish ecosystem mm -hmm. because of, you know, uh, Ryan Speckman from local seafood was, it's, he's, he's got his, you know, wildlife and fisheries degree at, at North Carolina State years ago. And he founded a, a fish market wholesale and retail called Locals, which brings in fish from the coast, finally, to folks inland mm -hmm. uh, in North Carolina, so that it's not all going up to the Fulton Market. And he was saying how, you know, the 
Labrador Current and the Gulf Stream meet off of the North Carolina coast. Mm -hmm. And it does create this incredible place of abundance, you know, in estuaries, all at risk, tied to climate change and big ag mm -hmm. and runoff from our right. big agricultural right. mm -hmm. uh, commercial farming in eastern North Carolina, which goes right into our coastal waters. But it was really those issues and then identifying, talking to lots of people, stakeholders out there across the state, folks who knew folks. But Liz, you also know there's really a strong, connected, complex food family that mm -hmm. we all know kind of in each of our states. And people start saying to you, you've got to speak to this person. They're, they're really knowledgeable, this person, this person. And that's, that's where we went. We knew we also wanted to represent, of course, North Carolina's great diversity and, and its indigeneity. You know, it's indigenous history was where we, we had to absolutely, I mean, there needs to be a, a whole, <laughs> a whole set of volumes, you know, on my shelf about indigenous food of, of the, of the South, but we included two essays by scholars, Melinda Maynard Lowry, who focused Islambi in a tribe in North Carolina, who now teaches it at Emory. And she did a really, every, every essay was, is kind of written from a first person mm -hmm. uh, point of view. Mm -hmm. She wrote an incredible essay about her own experience growing up, not in the, in the Lumby community that we think of down in Robeson County, kind of in Southeast North Carolina, but up in Durham, where her parents were professors and uh, teachers. And then Courtney Lewis, who just we spoke with her last night, she's an anthropologist, professor, historian at Duke. And she wrote about the Eastern Band of the Cherokee and food sovereignty issues uh, facing, facing the Cherokee tribe and people. And last night we had a discussion about how those same food sovereignty issues in different ways are being experienced by so many people um, and have been historically, you know, particularly people, in, you know, unlike indigenous tribes of, uh, or people in, of North Carolina, also people in need. I think so we work from issues to people. Yeah. Right. I, I think one of the uh, additional like parts of like figuring out who was going to write, I don't think this was intentional, but one of the happy kind of outcomes was that we do, in addition to having a diverse representation in the in the authorship, we also have a really diverse um, generational difference too, which I think is hugely important in talking about the contemporary landscape and that you have these older generations who have all this experience and have witnessed this change speaking in this book in different essays, but then you also have some of the younger, newer generations that are also going to be taking over and you know and and being at the helm and and dealing with a lot of this change as as they continue to age and bring newer generations into the state so i think that was a huge again kind of accidental i don't think that was really on purpose but it works out really nicely to get all these different perspectives and yes yeah, yeah. so i can i can really i can really see that i one of the things that i i think is um is true about the people who wrote the the young people who wrote their essays, there's so much optimism <laughs> in what they're trying to accomplish and and what their goals are, and uh, that was very 
I loved that. I loved that optimism. I mean, I realize that it is the optimism of youth, but at the same time, um, it, it just makes you feel like, well, that's a good thing because you just don't want, um, gloom and doom all the time. And somebody has got to be able to see, well, we still can do these things and, and whatever. Marcy, when you were talking about the seafood industry, uh, it was reminding me of Louisiana's coastline and the richness of our, of our potential seafood world, because so much of our economy is based on that. But we also are dealing with, of course, the petroleum industry and what that has done to our environment and not only in the water, but also on land so that it's made things so different, so changed. It's really scary to think about what it might mean for the future. Um, so Marcy. I, I, yes. well, I, I so hear you, Liz, because in every time I, I hear you know, what you say, and I listen to other colleagues and, you know, important, you know, experts across the country. And I just think, how can it be that our food and water is so vulnerable Yes, in the United States? And then I'll think, wake up, it's capitalism, <laughs> you know, like, hello, someone get born. You know, I, and that's we were we were talking last night. You know, maybe there's no longer do we need a Department of Agriculture. You know, we need a revolution, and it's a, we need a what did we what did we say, Casey? A Department of uh, Food Justice, a Department of Food Justice and Sovereignty, because Courtney and sovereignty. talked about food sovereignty, which is a really big topic that you'll you'll see throughout the yeah. book, not just in her essay. Yeah, food justice and sovereignty and joy. I think we added joy yeah, onto the end, but. Yeah, it's 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 incredible to think that each state, and I think that's one thing we learn too, and we hear from each each state is fighting a battle to preserve its food and water resources. And like one of our essay is Karen Amspacher, who grew up in the Core Sound, you know, coastal region in a little town called Marshallburg. She says food is our inherit. North Carolina seafood is our inheritance. Right. And, you know, she, she speaks to my students and says, claim your inheritance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's the fight with petroleum and, you know, the big the big industries, you know, that I think we're seeing a, a young, you know, a new generation is really, you know, leading that call. But we, we're also I think, you know, the thing that gives me hope, too, is we keep talking now about vote vote for people that understand food as an issue and a protected resource food and water in your state and ask questions about it about local food councils i mean my god if you live in jackson mississippi of course you're asking really hard questions about who you've elected right because they've been so disturbed you know by their representation you know and uh but i, I really see a lot of people here beginning to to realize that it's you just can't move forward here if you don't think about who we're electing you know in a time of such vulnerability right right and and people who even if they are not aware before they begin whatever campaign they're in are open to the idea that there are issues there that they may never have thought of before and that 
to me, that's really the really important that the issues be be outlined so that candidates can at least recognize that they exist, because I think so often they are just unaware, which is frightening. Yeah, and, and that's why that's why we're also telling. <laughs> that's why we tell like everybody run for office. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you can run for anything. You know, if you're smart, you live here in this community and you've got a little bit of time. You know, I want Casey to run for office. Now that I'm done with my <laughs> now that I'm done with my doctorate, that's the next step. And so I'll run I for really office. think that's you know, great. this is who needs this is who needs to run for office, you know, that's school right. board, county commission, right. city council. And that's where, you know, I they can become senators and you know, congress people later, you know. Um Right, right, uh, absolutely. So, Marcy, when when I was reading your essay, in your introduction, where you really kind of set the stage and you talk about the history and everything, one of the things that it reminded me of some of the history of the Louisiana coastline and some of the, the things that we've lost. There used to be a great oyster reef in the Gulf of Mexico, and um, that was between the Yucatan and Louisiana. And this great oyster reef apparently was as large as the great coral reef that we think of as this priceless place, but it was simply harvested away into nothing yeah. because it couldn't keep up with the rate of harvest and the the buffering effect of uh hurricanes are that it it produced was totally lost then and so all hurricanes that were kind of stopped on their way or slowed down on their way to the coast are just all of that 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 protection that you, of course, it was unseen. It was under the water, but it still offered this protection. And I thought of that as you were writing about the history of the food of North Carolina, that there's so much that we have already lost. And so it's fine to talk about the history and, and know what was here, but you have to also deal with the fact that it doesn't matter because it's gone. And um, and we have to pick up from the where we are now. We can't just live in the past or the history or whatever, because that's a fruitless task. And it's kind of a crazy place to live. And you know, I, that's such a that's such a powerful story, though. You know, like I, I didn't really know that that, you know, it's that that major, you know, piece about the region that I am from. You know, I mean, I grew up in Arkansas you know, not far from, from that historical area that you're describing. And I think of my illiteracy in understanding the food history. I mean, I was never taught it. Who was, you know, no, when we were little kids, yeah, right. there was no, no education about our food systems because we'd already, we were growing up in an industrial food system. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, there, there was a very different story of kind of, of modernity and progress and industrialization being told. And, and so the idea of these of small scale working landscapes, including that oyster reef, like that, that used to protect, that fed people in a sustainable way and it protected coastal world. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, that that's lost and what a terrible loss that was, what a trauma 
you know, that largely in, indigenous people took, took in. But we now, it makes, if we know that history, if we know better, we do better. So then we look at like our estuaries off the coast of North Carolina. And at least I think we have now a generation that's, especially after COVID, are really aware, much more aware that it's at risk. And, and you can't, you cannot not be aware of it in coastal North Carolina. And even like all the way over to Asheville, when we get these huge storms that are so powerful that it impacts the whole state. Right. You know, as we've seen with Florence and Dorian and, you know, what, what other yeah. one, Casey, Matthew. Matthew, you know, the, I mean, the flooding, you know, it's like suddenly we're in Holland, but with no flood protection. Right. And, 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 but so having waking up now to realize even more how even, even realizing how important it is to, to share that knowledge with children like Casey's age. Casey, your kids are how old? They are seven and four. And, and yeah, they will be the most food history educated children in the neighborhood <laughs> for sure. But I, I do see it in their in their schools. You know, the schools are are taking a better approach to things too than ever before, even at Avery's age in first grade. And it is really impressive. And I, I know it's probably work because a little bubble here in in our little university town, but I do see, I see that change starting to happen. And, and Avery sees this book on shelves and is very excited to tell other people about it. And, you know, she doesn't get everything in it, but, but it's happening. It's like, it's, it's in progress. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely wonderful. That's the book I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for the, not the young adult novel, but the book for like 12 and under, um, mm -hmm. that really talks about the food systems of America, the importance of food and water and hunger and accessibility and food justice, all of those sorts of things that we talk about. But there's not really a book that I've seen that introduces children to those ideas. And I would love to, I, I would love to see that. And it, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah, I think, and it's something that kids, you know, of all ages, you know, from my seven-year-old, even, you know, even my four-year-old and up can really, they can, they can reckon with that, you know, cause they know they need to eat. They know they, they go to the grocery store or the farmer's market or wherever. And, you know, and so that's something that they can really, they can grapple with really big, big problems and big issues like racism and sexism and classism and, climate crisis and stuff like that they can they can grapple with these really big issues that they might not fully comprehend or are not at the right age to fully comprehend but they can get to them through food especially through their local food systems um, or at their statewide systems so it's, it's a great entry point well and the other thing is that if they do go to the grocery store and if they're going to middle class or upper middle class grocery stores, they're seeing this array of food from everywhere. So it's not necessarily a local food system, uh, but they recognize that, you know, food comes or can at least be taught. These things come from Australia or these mm -hmm. things come from someplace else. And, um, you know, would we even be able to eat? I, you know, uh, I, uh, I think that we all grapple with our own 
um, desire to be able to eat strawberries 24, you know, all, all the time uh, for 12 months out of the year, as opposed to waiting till strawberries are perhaps locally grown in that six week period when you get to just stuff your face with uh, right. strawberries that are local. Um, and, and it, it, that, that cycle of, of eating is, is gone. It just yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. We've had some very traumatic conversations with my four-year-old about why pomegranates aren't around year, year round. And, um, Thank, thank goodness we live in an area of the state that has winter berries. They have, there's several greenhouses that grow strawberries over the winter, but pomegranates, boy, that has been a source of lots of <laughs> frustration for my four-year-old and, and not understanding why, why they can't just be right here right now. Um, but we're, we're working on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you do, do you do anything with the pomegranates, like any kind of preserving with them or anything or pop them into a jam or something like that or anything? No, I can't keep them. I can't keep them. He'll, he'll just eat them just, you know, <laughs> with his fists full of them. And, oh, that's and I, so don't wanna, I don't want to stop that, you know, no. like that's a good, that's a good healthy snack. Let's just keep that going. <laughs> you got to surprise him with some frozen pomegranates. I know. One of these. <laughs> one day, one day. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's so wonderful. So what are you two up to now? What are you working on? Marcy, what are you doing? <laughs> well, well, now I really I, want to work on this kid version of Edible North Carolina. At one point, we I, turned the cover into a, a coloring page for one of oh, our events. That's uh, wonderful. That was my, my seven-year-old's idea. So we just kind of turned it into black and white. And now I'm thinking, Marcy, that's our next project is we turn this into a book. I know. I, I love that idea too. It really, it really hit me when, when Liz said that. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's a really important project. It's, it's been interesting with this book too. We're, we're hoping to send it to all the culinary schools that are in the community college system. There's maybe eight to 10 across North Carolina and they're, they're excellent. I mean, you know, they're just training like incredible people in all kind of points of their lives and careers or pivoting or doing whatever they're doing, you know, but, you know, I think having them realize that this, this book is equally important, you know, for kind of their, their, for their food literacy. Right. But I think there's definitely a book for children right now, you know, that should be happening. I would, I would love to, to look into that. And uh, right now I'm working on many things, but I'm I'm serving as interim director of the Center for the Study of the American South at the University of North Carolina, where I'm really blessed to work with uh, a great team, a veteran team that's been there, you know, a while, and then a, a younger generation as well. Casey works with us on some of our communications issues and, and other projects. And, but it that's, you know, the team of Southern Cultures, that's the Southern Oral History Program, which is 50 years old this coming next year, academic year, Southern Cultures and the CSAS or the Center for the Study of the American South will turn 30 years old. And we have a new director coming in, uh, Blair Kelly, who is a really distinguished Black historian of Black working class America is, that's her newest book that's coming out oh, called wow. Black Book. Mm -hmm. And she'll begin uh, this summer. So we're working on really telling a complex story uh -huh. uh, at the center about our changing region and trying to also support 
all our connections and networks and and young folks and faculty and you know lots of different people that are engaged in the region to feel re-engaged safe um positive about you know moving forward you know after after the pandemic or as we move through our ever our, our long pandemic casey you've got so many book projects and tell yeah. a little I bit more a, about what couple, you're doing i have a couple of book projects in the works i can't divulge too many things but one of them is definitely on southern women and recipes kind of in the archives that one's coming up soon I'm working with all of these are collaborative projects which I think are honestly the best kind of book projects and and then continuing my work with the museum of food and drink um, I'm very happy to be working with them and we get to work with other museums like SoFab and I don't know the world is wide open and and the world is my oyster, I guess. <laughs> At this point. So, Liz, I, I wanted to mention too. I'm a co-editor, faculty editor of the, of our journal called Southern Cultures. Oh, that you can go yeah. online to to look at. It's published by UNC Press, and in this 30th anniversary year next year, we'll be publishing four volumes as we always do. But they'll really look at at, at great kind of overarching topics for an anniversary of the issue of democracy in our region and nation today. I think there'll be a special music issue, one on religion, and another issue that's going to be coming up is on food justice. So I just say that to folks to be, get on the mailing list for follow, you know, Instagram for Southern Cultures and look for that call for papers when it, when it, when we ask people to submit that's great pay attention to it because I'd love to have great folks doing a food justice um food justice issue not just an essay but the whole issue about that whole issue there's because I I'm particularly interested in um elder food justice issues Mm -hmm. where elders don't have um the money to um to buy their medicine and pay their rent and eat and uh, they just kind of fade away. It's, uh, it's a, I mean, there are other major food justice issues, I understand, but that's one of particular interest to me. Oh, I, I so agree with you. And I, I think, you know, at, at this point in my life with an elder parent, uh-huh. I, I really pay attention to the, the food issues that my mom is encountering in her, in her late 90s. And even kind of her food independence, mm-hmm. her lack lack thereof mm-hmm. of her of her choices. I mean, she's gets enough food, you know. Thankfully, it's it's not the the food landscape that I wish she had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my. Well, on that note, <laughs> let yeah. me say thank you to both of you. This has been a really delightful conversation. Everybody should look at Edible North Carolina because it is absolutely a wonderful book. Very thought-provoking essays. Edible North Carolina, A Journey Across a State of Flavor. Thank you, Marcy. Hey, Liz, Casey, can, uh, I, can, can I add one thing? Please. I just wanted to mention, it's an, another reason to look at the book. It's the beautiful and compelling photography. Yes. The photography. The great is- photography team led by Baxter Miller photographer who grew up in Hatteras off our, our the Outer Banks of North Carolina and her partner, Ryan Stansel. They did all the photography across the state and it really gives you kind of a 
a good view of many individuals across the state who are at the heart of this food movement as they are, you know, across the United States and across our region. And you have Vivian Howard writing your, your forward, which also was really, really special. Yeah. We were so honored because she really understands North Carolina food and its food systems as a native North Carolinian growing up in Eastern North Carolina, but also it's classic Vivian. It's funny, edgy, you know, out there just you know and 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 beautiful you know it makes you tear up a little bit right, too. it's just right. really yeah. really a beautiful essay yeah. that's that's how she writes yeah. we've also got several james beard award winners in there too oh, oh, right. yeah. we are very proud of that fact and love love giving you know giving them shout outs so um it's just a great it's a great group of folks yeah no, i know <laughs> who are who are all our board beard, beard winners we've got Ricky Moore, Andrea Bruzing, Bill Smith, Ronnie Lundy, Ronnie Lundy, Ronnie Lundy. Uh, Chidi Kumar was a, a nominee, um, right? And and then you know all of the other you know all the other people who were quoted in this book too the not just the essayists but all of the the interviews that Marcy did over the um, duration of the research process. So, so there's just so many great voices in this book. Yeah, Andrea Weigel's you know terrific essay on pasture raised pork. You know, we talked about, you know, what are the kind of iconic flattened foods sometimes that people think of? It's not flattened, but North Carolina and its barbecue, it's so iconic. It's so important. But Andrea took the 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 writing viewpoint of looking at pasture-raised pork and that goes into particular, you know, barbecue right. uh, pit masters and chefs in our state. And that was fantastic. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And um, this people just need to read the book. That's 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 all we can say. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.